This week on the SSPX podcast, we'll be sharing the parish mission from St. Vincent de Paul's in Kansas City as it was delivered in 2004. Today on Passion Wednesday, we'll be hearing from Father Gerard Beck on the topic of the scourging at the pillar and the events which led up to this suffering, both the physical and the moral suffering. If you would like to hear more parish missions, reflections, conferences, as well as our Crisis in the Church series and Questions with Father series, please visit sspxpodcast.com. And next week, we'll have another series of meditations on the Passion of Our Lord for Holy Week. Now we'll turn to the Wednesday evening mission from Father Beck. When we think of our Lord's sufferings, my dear friends, very often we go directly to the sufferings on the cross. We miss a lot. Father Libiades last night spoke to you about our Lord's agony in the garden and the moral sufferings which were his at that time. Tonight I'd like to speak to you about the second sorrowful mystery, the scourging at the pillar and the events which led up to that suffering. You'll see that there's not only the physical suffering, there's much, much more moral suffering. After our Lord was arrested in the garden, bound like a petty criminal, he was led to Caiaphas the high priest. It was night. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious court, should not have been meeting, but it was. And the high priest questioned our Lord about his disciples and about his teaching, not because he didn't know what our Lord taught, but because he was insinuating something. He was saying, I know what you've said openly, but tell me what your real agenda is. What are you really all about? Our Lord's response merited him a slap from the servant. A servant seeking the praise and the favor of a man slaps Almighty God. Many a witness came forth. All of them had something to say about our Lord, but none of them could agree. That right there, my dear friends, this fact that they couldn't come up with a witness or two witnesses which, who could come to some concrete conclusion regarding our Lord, that right there is proof of just how irreproachable his life was. It's also proof that they didn't want to see the truth. They didn't want to know. The high priest, after a given time, grew impatient. And he stood up and he stepped forward and he said, I adjure you by the living God to tell us if thou be the Christ, the Son of God. That's what he wanted. He wanted our Lord to say he was God. He knew what our Lord taught. He wanted our Lord to say it. To say it so he could be accused of blasphemy. 
I am. And you shall see the Son of God sitting at the right hand of the power of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see me now in a lowly state. One day you will see me coming in judgment. And if I'm silent now, I will not be silent then. The high priest had what he wanted. And so he showed the appropriate response. He took his priestly robes and from the bottom to the top he ripped them asunder to show his indignation, his horror that a man would claim himself to be God. What further need have we of witnesses, he said to the others. You have heard the blasphemy. What is your finding? And they all condemned him as liable to death. A religious court condemns Almighty God as a blasphemer. As we said, it was night. This so-called trial was not legal. It did not have the proper appearances of being legal even. And so they would have to meet again in the morning. The Sanhedrin dispersed. Our Lord was left to the attendants of the court, to the guards, They could not sleep. Why should he? And so we can well imagine that he didn't sleep one moment that night. And Scripture tells us that the men who had him in custody began to mock him. They spat in his face and buffeted him. To spit at Almighty God. Is there any insult that we could give to someone which is more grave than to spit in their face. There's not. We spit at something which is filthy. To spit in somebody's face is to say, you disgust me to the point I don't even want to see you. They spit in the face of God. Almighty God had waited 4,000 years or more to reveal his face to man, and men spit in it. When we think about that, there's sort of inside of us a feeling of righteous indignation, at least there ought to be. But why was our Lord treated that way? And not just spit upon The other Gospels add their little details. He was buffeted. He was struck with a fist. He was slapped. But why? Why was he treated that way? To show what a sinner does to God when he sins. He shows scorn for God. He chooses some thing or person or pleasure over God. 
And so our Lord was expiating for sin by allowing himself to be treated the way sinners merit to be treated. He was making up for it. But what strength! Look at the strength of our Lord. If someone spit in your face, you would pound them. I would pound them. Our Lord did nothing. The strength that it took for our Lord to maintain his composure, his dignity, his majesty before these men is something we can only dream about. And he looked at them. Imagine the look of our Lord, the gaze of our Lord on these men. They couldn't stand it. Perhaps that's why they blindfolded him. One of the evangelists says, they blindfolded him and then struck him on the face, saying, Prophesy to us, O Christ, who is it that struck thee? You've claimed you're a prophet. You've claimed you're God. So tell us, who hit you? Mockery. Morning came. And the religious trial of our Lord was resumed. We'll pass over it very briefly. There had to be an official condemnation. And also they sought for means to obtain ratification of that condemnation from Pilate. You see, the Jews had the right to try someone in a religious trial something that pertained to their faith, but they didn't have the right to put someone to death. If they decided that someone deserved death, then this civil leader had to investigate the matter and make a decision himself. Well, they knew full well that Pilate was not interested in their religion. He was not interested in blasphemy. He had his gods. His gods were not their god. And so they had to come up with something else. They thought they came up with a few things. And so they took him to Pilate. Pilate came forth out of the praetorium. What accusation do you bring against this man? It was an epic of rebellion at the time. The Roman authorities knew well that the the Jews chaffed under the yoke of a foreign power. They watched the Jews very closely. It's highly unlikely that Pilate did not know very well what our Lord was all about and did not know at the same time very well how much jealousy and hatred his enemies had for him. But he resented, as well he might, he resented being treated like a rubber stamp executioner. And so he said to them, what are the accusations? 
Their response shows their nervousness, their defensiveness, their indignation. If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to you. A malefactor, an evildoer, one who does no good. Where were the deaf, the dumb, the blind, the lame, who had been cured by our Lord? Where were those who had been raised from the dead? Where were those who had been freed from demonic possession? Would they have called him a malefactor? Pilate, of course, knew what they were about, and yet he listens to their accusations, which were three. Three accusations which had nothing to do with what they had discussed in their religious court. We have found this man perverting our nation, they said, and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he is Christ the King. Subversion, pushing people to revolt. Refusing the tribute to lawful authority and claiming that he was king. Pilate knew well that the first two accusations were completely false. But the third one concerned him. The third one was important for him as Roman governor. And so he went aside to our Lord, Art thou the king of the Jews? There was, perhaps, in his voice a certain scorn. We can imagine well what our Lord looked like at that moment, after the night that he had passed, spit in his beard, black and blue, blood streaming on his face already. Are you a king? You? You yourself have said it. I am king. For this reason I was born, and for this reason I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth, to that truth. I am king because I am God. Pilate is not concerned about truth, Pilate is a pragmatist. He's concerned about what works for him, what helps him achieve his ends, whether as an individual or as procurator. Truth. What is truth? And he goes out to the Jews, satisfied that he has nothing to fear from a king of truth. And he says to them flatly, I find no cause in him. Period. The Jews, of course, argued with him. He would hear nothing of it. And so they began to cry the louder. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee even to here. Oh, he began in Galilee. He's from Galilee, a Galilean. Pilate was very happy. He had found a way to get out of the predicament that he had found himself in. He's under Herod's jurisdiction. Let Herod judge him. And so the Jews, 
found themselves appealing to a public sinner to condemn Almighty God. Herod was an adulterer. He left his wife. He had married Herodias, his sister-in-law. John the Baptist had reproved him forth and had been beheaded for his trouble. Herod had heard much about our Lord, and he was very curious because he thought that John the Baptist was a great prophet. And he thought perhaps that this miracle worker from Galilee was in fact John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. He was afraid to give him credibility by paying too much attention to him. And at the same time, he was very curious. He wanted to see what this man was about. And so when he heard that Pilate was sending him to him, he was very happy. He rejoiced, Scripture says. He was also flattered that the Roman procurator should think enough of him to refer such a case to his jurisdiction. Herod was a vain man. He thought he would flatter our Lord. And so he spoke to our Lord of religious things, the promise of a Messiah, the hopes of Israel. He wanted our Lord to think that his court, Herod's court, was an ideal forum for making his doctrine known. Imagine if he could convince a king and all the king's attendants that he was the Messiah. Imagine the effect that it would have on all of Jerusalem and all of Israel if our Lord would work a miracle in the king's very court. That's what Herod wanted him to think. Our Lord didn't bite. Scripture says, He answered him nothing. Why nothing? Because our Lord, my dear friends, knew very well where Herod was coming from. He reads hearts. He knew that Herod was not interested in the truth, no more than Pilate was. And he would not cast pearls before swine. He knew, too, that Herod was blinded, blinded by his impurity. He could not understand what our Lord would say to him. He had long ago lost the ability, and his heart was hardened. Hardened by the abuse of grace, John the Baptist had been sent to convert him. He had beheaded John the Baptist. The grace of Almighty God had been trampled upon. He will not subject his grace to mockery. And so he was silent. There is here, my dear friends, a very grave lesson for us. The fathers of the church very often mention it. Beware the silence of God. The silence of reprobation. 
When God punishes in seeming anger, he shows clearly that he, he still seeks the conversion of a soul or a nation. But when he's silent, it shows that he's abandoned that soul or that nation to itself, to its hard-heartedness. St. Alphonsus says, Miserable the soul to whom the Lord speaks no longer. It's something for us to think about. Because isn't it true that each one of us, me and you, have very many times ignored the graces of our Lord, knowing, knowing that it was a grace from Almighty God. Isn't it true that we've merited the silence of our Lord? Of course, Herod was oblivious to all of this and indifferent. The chief priests and the scribes, for their part, stood by loudly accusing him. They were a bit uneasy. This flattery of Herod had them thinking perhaps we're going to lose him after all. Herod put aside their arguments, though. He didn't want to get involved. He decided to take another route. He found all of this rather silly, that our Lord would explain that he was a king, that Pilate would take him serious enough to even send him to him. And so he thought he'd show Pilate exactly what he thought of our Lord's kingship. And so he instructed the attendants to put a white robe on him, a festal robe, the robe that a candidate for high office, high public office would wear. He's a candidate for kingship? Well, let him dress like a candidate for kingship. And they mocked him. They mocked him. Herod and all of his court. And if we think about it, my dear friends, mockery hurts a lot more even than hatred. Hurts a lot more than blows. Hurts a lot more even than death. Especially when one is noble of heart, like our Lord. We, followers of Christ, will be mocked. If we follow him, we will be mocked. Because to the world, we are fools at best. We are insane at worst. The world cannot understand large families, modest dress, penance, Latin mass, Confession, no TV in the home, purity. All of this is completely foreign to the world. And if we stand up for our Lord, if we are Catholic, we will be mocked by a world which is lost in its buffoonery the way Herod was lost in his, and by a world which thinks sex is the end all, 
and is thus blinded. Herod and the world have lot in common. Our Lord then is sent back to Pilate. Pilate, we might imagine, was rather dismayed and certainly somewhat irritated. He was also worried. He protested our Lord's innocence once again, but at the same time, he was concerned about the influence of the chief priests and the scribes when this great crowd, which was in Jerusalem at the time, it was the Passover, of course. Jews came from all over the, the, the immediate area and even further to offer the Passover. And so there were very, very many Jews in this city Easily influenced by the priest, as you might imagine, and Pilate was worried. He did not want a revolt on his hands. It would not look good on his resume. And so he tried another trick. It was an ancient Jewish custom that during the Passover festival time, the governor would release to the people a prisoner, whoever the crowd would like. He would release them. Usually it would be a political prisoner, a hero to the people. Pilate thought for sure that he had a means to trick the Jews into releasing our Lord. And so he reached into his prisons as far, far back as he could go, and he pulled out a man who was a revolutionary who had led a revolt, who was a murderer, a robber, Barabbas. A man who truly was a threat to the Jewish nation. Remember, why did the Jews turn our Lord over to Pilate? Because they were afraid that he would cause the Romans to come and take away their power. That he would cause everyone to follow him and that they would see him as a threat and that they themselves would lose their prestigious positions, the money that they got from the temple sacrifices, and so on. Well, here was a man in Barabbas who truly was a threat, because he was a revolutionary. He had led a revolt against the Roman authorities. So Pilate thought, surely they will not ask that he should be released. And yet he underestimated their hatred, and their jealousy. His gamble backfired. He stood out before them and he said, Whom shall I release, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? I would have liked to have been there to see the expression on his face when they cried out, Barabbas! What am I to do then with, with this Jesus? He's innocent. Let him be crucified. What evil has he done? We can imagine the exasperation on the part of Pilate. He was torn. Pilate had a certain sense of justice, at least. He knew our Lord's innocence. He knew why our Lord had been brought before him. And yet, Pilate was not willing to put justice or truth 
or anyone or anything before his own career. He earned it before his own personal interest. He's torn. The crowd certainly sees his hesitation. Meanwhile, the chief priest, the scribes, are working them up. And so they cry out again and again and again, Let him be crucified. The same people who, a week before, had proclaimed our Lord the Messiah, now cry out for his blood. If we think about it, my dear friends, perhaps the moment throughout our Lord's passion, the moment that hurt him the most was this one. He stood before his people, the people he had come to save, and they cried out for his blood. They had no reason to do so, and so they simply cried out the more, Crucify him. My people, what have I done to thee? Or in what have I offended thee? Answer me. These words we pray on Good Friday as we come forth to adore the cross. A glimpse into the heart of our Lord at that moment. Again we have in our souls a certain sense of indignation at what these people did to our Lord. And yet, my dear friends, what does a soul that commits mortal sin do to our Lord if not exactly the same thing? Which do you prefer? This fleeting pleasure? This illicit love? This moment of revenge? This bit of convenience? Or Jesus Christ? Barabbas. The soul doesn't make the choice out of hatred for our Lord. Certainly not, at least most of the time. It makes the choice out of weakness. But what difference does it make? The result is the same. What am I to do with Jesus, your Savior, then? Let him be crucified. It's the Council of Trent and St. Paul both who say the soul that a soul who commits mortal sin, if it were possible, renders our Lord's death again necessary. It's not necessary. He's God. He died. It's enough to take care of every mortal sin that any person ever could commit. But if it were possible, if it were possible, it would render his death necessary again. Our Lord is crucified in the heart of that soul at that moment. Why? What evil has he done? Doesn't he love you with an infinite love? Doesn't he desire only one thing, your heart? Didn't he come to this earth for only one reason, to save your soul? Isn't he the greatest of all goods? Isn't he the only thing that can make you happy in the long run? Why then? But a soul, my dear friends, that's caught in the devil's snare, 
doesn't hear any of that. He doesn't hear the cry of grace. It's a long ways away. Almighty God is a long ways away. The price that he paid is far, far away. None of it seems very important at that moment, because all he can see is himself and the thing that he wants. Let him be crucified. And isn't it true that very often those words come from the mouth and the heart of one who is close to our Lord, a friend of our Lord, one nurse at his holy table, one who is well instructed in his faith, one perhaps who has been brought far in the spiritual life, one who has been given very much, one who has been greatly loved. And that's why Zachary prophesied and he says, and they shall say to him, what are these wounds in the midst of thy hands? And he shall say, with these was I wounded in the house of them that loved me. So Barabbas is chosen over our Lord. Pilate wasn't quite ready to give up. You have presented unto me this man, he said, trying, of course, to appear like he still has some authority left. He doesn't. Behold, I have examined him before you. I find no cause in him. Neither is Herod. I will chastise him, therefore, and release him. He's innocent, therefore I'll chastise him. Imagine what that did to our Lord. God, who is justice itself, to receive that kind of an injustice, Pilate had again and again and again said, He is innocent. I insist he's innocent. I know what you're about. And then he says, But to satisfy you, I will chastise him. Each and every one of us in this church, my dear friends, has had on one occasion or another suffered injustice. Maybe it was back in our childhood when we were punished unjustly. Maybe it was a game that we played as a teenager and that we were cheated out of a victory on. Maybe it was something much graver than that. Isn't it true that we still remember it to this day? Isn't it true that deep down inside we still feel that injustice? Maybe we've forgiven, but have we forgotten? We haven't. We have a strong sense of justice. Imagine what it cost our Lord to hear Pilate in one instance say he's innocent 
and in the next instant say, but he is to be punished. Because that's what you're asking for. Pilate, of course, had a motive. His motive was to arouse sympathy in the Jewish people who stood before him. He hoped that when they saw our Lord whipped like a dog, that their lust for blood would be satisfied. Scripture doesn't tell us much about the scourging. St. John says simply, Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. He seems to think that to simply say that is enough. We know something about scourging as it was done during the times that our Lord lived. The instrument that was used was called a flagrum. It was a type of whip. The straps had on the end of each one, or near the end of each one, some lead balls. Or in some cases, they would use pieces of bone. The idea was that when the whip hit the body, that the balls would bruise and that the bones would dig in. It was brutal. The person who was scourged suffered the humiliation publicly, most often. We don't know for sure that our Lord was scourged in public, but it would make sense given the motive that Pilate had. The revelation of Our Lady to St. Bridget also says the same thing. And it says that Our Lady was there, that she watched her son be whipped. The victim who was whipped was stripped naked. The Shroud of Turin shows us that because the wounds in the pelvic area of Our Lord are numerous and every bit as deep as the wounds on the rest of his body. So he was naked. It was revealed to St. Bridget again that it was our Lord himself who took off his clothes, showing his willingness to suffer this humiliation and this pain for us. We can well imagine, though, that he blushed, there wasn't a friend in the crowd, aside perhaps Our Lady. The human nature that our Lord had taken was the object again of mockery. The one who was scourged was attached to a column. There's some speculation as to whether the column was short or high, but the Shroud of Turin seems to indicate that our Lord's Hands were fastened high because there are no wounds on his forearms, or very little. And if his arms had been low on a short column, there would have been many a wound. So it seems that he was strapped high, very high. And that was most often the way that the Romans would flagellate someone. 
They would be attached to rings that would stretch them out so that their whole body was exposed, so that they couldn't shield anything. Now, Jewish law said that the one who was scourged would receive not more than 40 lashes. And so, because they were always very careful not to break the law, they said, well, we'll stop at 39. But our Lord did not receive a Jewish flagellation. He received a Roman one. And Roman law set no limit. The law simply said, you will stop short of death because the flagellation could easily kill the one who was scourged, as you can well imagine. We don't know how many lashes our Lord received. The marks go from his shoulders to the lower part of his legs, as we see on the Shroud of Turin. Most of them are on his back, but some are even on his chest. It seems at times that the Romans would whip one who was crucified as he carried his cross to crucifixion. Perhaps they came from then. We don't know. On the shroud, we see about 120 marks. But we know that only those marks, as Dr. Barbet, I think his name is, who wrote the book on the Shroud of Turin, only those blows which actually broke the skin of our Lord would show up. A severe bruise wouldn't show up on the Shroud. So we don't know. Certainly we mustn't exaggerate the number of blows. There are revelations which seem to indicate that the blows were thousands upon thousands. Remember, our Lord had a human nature. Afterwards, he was able to stand, and afterwards he was also able to carry his cross, at least for a few moments. So we shouldn't exaggerate the brutality of the Roman soldiers, and yet we know that the sufferings that our Lord suffered were horrific. We know that because of what Pilate did immediately after. He brought our Lord forth and he said, Behold the man. Look at him. Can you want the crucifixion of such a wretch? Aren't you satisfied? Imagine the scorn that Pilate had for the Jewish people. Of course, then on the Lord, on, the, on his way to Calvary, and the other fathers will speak in detail about this, the women who followed him wept. We know that. Were they friends of our Lord? Were they followers of our Lord? Were they believers in his doctrine? Many of them probably weren't. And yet pity. Our Lord also was greatly, greatly weakened. We know that because... Someone was forced to carry the cross behind our Lord. Certainly it was not out of pity that the Roman soldiers had someone else carry our Lord's cross. It was only because they didn't think he would make it to Calvary. Very important for us, my dear friends, to reflect on this scourging of our Lord. To place ourselves there. To look at our Lord. He's whipped like a brute animal. All of the fathers of the church say the same thing. 
He suffered this torture to make up for sins of the flesh. And they say that because a soul who commits impurities reduces itself to the level of a brute animal. He follows his instincts to the point where he's a slave to them. He becomes an animal. That's why we look upon sins of impurity with such shame, because we know instinctively inside of us, we know that we're not meant to be controlled by our lower nature. We're meant to be controlled by our reason. Our reason knows what's right. It tells us what to do. And here our reason knows what's right, and it abandons itself to the passions. That's why the sense of shame. We need to look at our Lord. We need to see the state to which he is reduced. It's prophesied in the Old Testament by Isaiah. There is no beauty in him, no comeliness. We have seen him, and there is in him no sightliness. What a contrast, my dear friends, to what was before. When the crowds would strain to see our Lord, when they were so attracted by his dignity, by his majesty, by his beauty, we see Zacchaeus climb a tree because he couldn't see our Lord through the crowd and he wanted so much to see him. And now there's in him no beauty, none. His look was, Isaiah says, as it were, hidden and despised. And we beheld him and esteemed him not. He's no longer recognizable. Could even Our Lady recognize our Lord? And we have thought him, as it were, a leper, as one struck by God and afflicted. A leper covered with wounds from head to foot. An object of revulsion. It's something only the people at the time of our Lord could understand. When leprosy was feared and hated. Why all of this? Why did our Lord suffer all of this? Hatred for sin. Hatred for sin and love for us. Can we really look at our Lord? Indiscouraging. Or when he's being mistreated by the soldiers. Or when he's being mocked by Herod. Can we really look at him? Really look at him? And be indifferent. Can our hearts be untouched? Can we still have the same callousness towards sin? And isn't it true that we have it? You have it, I have it. Only in our Lord's sufferings can we see sin in its horror, what it really is. If sin isn't horrifying to us, it's because we haven't looked at our Lord. We're too used to it. We can get used to anything. It's scary. If our Lord stood here physically scourged, and we came week after week after week to Mass, and we looked upon our Lord scourged, we would get used to it. We can get used to anything. 
Look at the way we receive communion. Look at the way we go to confession. Look at the way we pray the rosary. Look at the way we make a genuflection. Look at the way we make the sign of the cross. But if, my dear friends, out of desire to love our Lord, and out of desire to have a hatred for that which caused him so much suffering, we look at our Lord deliberately when we're tempted. We cannot sin. Either we must look away or we will not be able to sin. And so that's what we need to do tonight. Maybe during the Mass that we're about to assist that, to look at our Lord in the sufferings we've spoken of. And maybe each one of us can ask ourselves, how many times have I spit on our Lord? How many times have I cried out, Crucify him. How many times have I scourged him? He loved me and delivered himself for me. That's St. Paul. St. Paul was driven to do everything that he did. Travel the world over suffer shipwreck, abandonment, scourgings, hunger, thirst, betrayal. He was driven to do everything that he did because he knew what our Lord had done for him. He loved me and he delivered himself for me. We need, my dear friends, during this week, and I'm sure the other fathers will speak of it as well, we need to ask ourselves what our Lord has done for us and what we are willing to do in return. We need to have gratitude. We need to be grateful. St. Bonaventure said once when he was writing about our Lord and his sufferings, I weep for you, my Jesus, my King, my Lord, my Master, my Father, my Brother. Gratitude. Gratitude. And he continued and he said, O meek Lord and Savior of the world, how can I thank you worthily? And our Lord answered him. See, he said, how disfigured I am, torn, bloody, annihilated. Do you know why? To lift you up, you wandering sheep, and to put you on my shoulder, and to bring you to the heavenly pasture in paradise. Now, return my love. Look at me and my passion. Love me. I gave myself to you. Give yourself to me. Love is repaid only by love. 
You know that yourselves. If you love someone and they give you anything less than love in return, you are the most unhappy in all the world. And it's the same with our Lord. The only difference is that our Lord has a right, a right to demand from us our whole heart because he gave us his whole heart. He meant it when he said he loves us. Do we mean it when we say that we love him? He showed in no uncertain terms what he thinks of sin and what sin did to him and to his Father in heaven. Do we have the same hatred for sin that he has, and particularly the sins of impurity? For the world, there is no such thing. Think about it, it's true. Is there really any such thing as a sin of impurity for the world? There's nothing. You can do absolutely anything. So long as it's between you and yourself or two consenting adults or whatever, it's fine. How different from Our Lady, Our Lady of Fatima, who told the children at Fatima that more souls go to hell for sins of impurity than for any other sin. So, my dear friends, we reflect on these things during the Mass that we're about to assist at and ask for the grace, the grace of gratitude, the grace of hatred for sin, and most of all, the grace of a true love for our Lord Jesus Christ.